Hello and welcome to the Editor's Cut podcast by Cosmetics Design. The novel coronavirus COVID-19 continues to shape life as we know it. Back in April, the global cosmetics design team came together to discuss the market impact and challenges thrown up by this pandemic for the beauty and personal care category. Six months on, we're back to consider just how exactly industry has fared so far, what some of the key learnings have been during this crisis, and what the future might hold as industry pushes forward to the end of an unprecedented year. So from the EMEA regional point of view, um, the last six months has been full of, I would say, highs and lows across the beauty category. Uh, When the three of us spoke last time, this region's major beauty markets, France, Germany, Spain, Italy and the UK, were all um, in lockdown. And we're actually now almost set to come full circle. We've seen France go into lockdown very recently, the UK imminently, and there's been discussions in Germany, Spain and Italy of certain adjustments to business as usual. So I sort of fear that this business in a new normality that we saw in the last six months may start to change again. In terms of some of the figures that we we saw, global data came out with a report saying that the UK beauty category would see a value decline of 10% for 2020. And the the two leading French trade associations, Cosmed and Fibia, F-E-B-A-E-A, both came together and acknowledged that the French beauty category has been incredibly hard hit by COVID in these last six months. Um, I always find it interesting to have a quick look at the financials, certainly of of the leading beauty players, because it gives a real sense of how business has fared and is faring. And we've actually seen some interesting uplifts. So Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson have both seen sales lift uh, recently. And even L'Oreal, actually, um, who who has a significant amount of brands in the hardest hit categories, coloured cosmetics and fragrance, they've also seen a lift globally, albeit uh, Western Europe was still sort of in decline recently. So, yeah, highs and lows and and still plenty of uncertainty here in the EMEA, especially as many of the major beauty markets are now considering moving into lockdowns or different business terms as, you know, COVID cases continue to rise. Uh, Deanna, what's the US like at the moment and how has the market and business fared in, in the last six months? There are definitely some parallels to what you're seeing, but um, here in the States, I would just start by saying that we're still very much dealing with COVID-19. Cases are rising in nearly every state daily, um, and a lot of our local government officials are reluctant or even resistant to mandate safety measures that limit and restrict uh, business and daily life. And, and as you likely know, the federal government here is doing quite little to combat the virus or support the economy, and this is having a, a tremendous effect on every industry, of course, um, but certainly beauty. Some of the things I would point to directly in recent months uh, that are related to the pandemic include a lot of packaging and supply chain, uh, either shortages or delays. Um, Packaging in particular has shown up in the news quite a lot recently. I think it was at the end of August uh, that Purell actually started packaging their hand sanitizer in other sorts of containers that they normally put like dish soap in or even a hydrogen peroxide sort of bottle, um, you know, just so 
they could get hand sanitizer gel out to um, frontline workers, but also to businesses reopening, as you said, sort of this new sense of normalcy that we're living through. Literally every business, you know, has, has a need for hand sanitizer for their staff, um, as well as for any customers that they see. Um, and, you know, because of just the change in, in the style of work that everyone is learning to manage, we're still seeing plenty of shipping delays. We're seeing shortages of packaging, um, you know, with the with the shift of, of the Purell example. Of course, then all the products down the line that were using those sorts of packages that are now being used for hand sanitizer, there's sort of a chain reaction, right? So it's not just um, a select sort of package or closure or dispenser that's limited, um, but it's having repercussions sort of across the supply chain. I know polymers in particular are showing up as a challenging ingredient to get your hands on because they are used so commonly in hand sanitizer gel formulations, um, and that's really one of the most popular um, hygiene products going right now. Um, so that's affecting other products. And I know, you know, um, we're still seeing plenty of new product development and what have you, but uh, chemists are having to make sort of alternative choices um, where some items are not really available in the supply that they would have otherwise been. You know, listening to multinational leaders, but also um, smaller business leaders, timelines are really changing um, and thinking about when things can be delivered or, or what sorts of expectations they can have of their suppliers and then through the distribution chain. So they're uh, sort of having to juggle that. And oftentimes, you know, working with someone to find an alternative. Um, again, I'll, I'll point to the Purell example. If, you know, if the bottle you're used to using isn't, isn't available, um, you have to find a different container and then, you know, do some consumer education uh, to make sure they understand what's going on and why. You mentioned a sales lift that you're seeing from certain multinationals in particular there in Europe. And I would I would point to a similar phenomenon. A beauty overall is doing quite well here in the States, which is always very reassuring, particularly self-care, skin care, sort of product lines like this. Um, but I have seen really impressive sales lifts among indie brands and startup companies um, that are being delightfully responsive. You know, some can make changes to their supply chain or manufacturing quite quickly and have been able to to do very well as a result. Um, a brand I think we're all watching that Crayol Essence has made some really wise choices and seems to be doing quite well. Um, the well-known probiotic brand called Tula has seen tremendous sales lift in recent months and is expanding exponentially. Um, they're hiring across the board, which is which is very promising. Another brand I, I don't mention often, but I've heard from quite recently called Skin Kick has had a terrific sales lift as well. So I think there's plenty of good news. And I think if I were to sort of summarize uh, what I was just thinking about, it would it would be that even though there are all these, you know, delays and challenges and, you know, economic disruptions, the industry is really doing an impressive job of, of coordinating and collaborating to, to keep things moving ahead. So it's quite promising. How about in Asia? Well, I, I feel like in Asia, it's, I think I said the last time things are mixed back and it still seems the same way. And I've honestly lost, lost track about which places are, have the virus under control and, and which hasn't. Um, of course, some things have not changed. You know, China is still leading. In terms of, like, good news, like Diana mentioned, China is still leading the charge. You know, we are seeing, like, the, the figures from all the multinationals saying that China is going is continuing to be stable. So I guess that's good news. Um, everywhere else, I would say that one thing I'm very surprised in APEC is that we are still seeing the expansion of a lot of brands into the market. I think most 
recently we've seen Orbe Hair Care launch in Southeast Asia um, in August around now, and they, and they seem to have they seem to see a lot of potential in the market. And also a lot of indie brands are launching in, in, in Asia Pacific, like new brands that have launched like just right after COVID or just before COVID hitting. And they seem to be faring quite well. And some of these smaller brands, you know, they're tapping into the gaps they see in the market. They're even moving into physical retail spaces uh, left by bigger companies, even though retail is you know, not, not doing very well. There's a brand in Hong Kong called Rare Skin Fuel, which just launched um, their flagship store in Landmark, Hong Kong, which if you don't know, it's a really swanky mall with all the luxury brands you see. And you know, I recently spoke to a distributor of an Italian brand. It's called uh, Santa Maria Novella. So they have been in Singapore since 2018, but only they recently launched a flagship store in our shopping district, like right in the center of our shopping district, because they feel that it's the right time to tap onto the consumer demand for products that cater to you know well-being and 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 self-care. And of course, we can. We're also seeing, like, um, I think you mentioned, a lot of the companies are innovating in terms of like beauty tech companies like L'Oreal, Shiseido. You know, one of my favorite beauty tech stories recently has been a one by L'Oreal. Have they? They launched a Lancome contactless smart store in South Korea. So it's quite interesting that if you can go to this counter, you can do your, you can try on um, your products virtually. There are digital price tags. You can do contactless payments, and basically you can just go through this entire process, you know, completely um, safely and, you know, without touching anything. So it kind of plays in the consumer demand and then it also helps them feel more confident about going out back and out the market. And also, I, I just received a press release today actually about SkinCeuticals and they are launching a beauty counter in Singapore. And um, I haven't really gotten the interview back yet, but it's from what I see, it's really quite cool. Not only do we have like, you know, a lot of virtual education kind of programs, but it also comes with a, the, the whole counter also is, is being manned by a, an AI robot, which I think is quite cool. So yes, I think things are not as booming as pre-COVID, but all is not lost in the market. There's still a lot of potential, especially in things like uh, skin sensitivity, you know, derma beauty, because that's probably one of the biggest issues around Asia, you know, because it, it can be quite humid here and arguably there is more pollution in, in the region. So we can see a lot of sensitive skin issues rising, a lot of um, mass knee issues. So I've spoken to a few brands with acne products and they seem to be doing really, really well. And of course, targeting the whole the whole situation around skin health is probably the one of the most important things in in the region right now. So yes, um, there's still a lot of potential in the market. I don't think there's all bad news. I think there's definitely a, a lot of positive cues in the market, aren't there? Uh, certainly in the EMEA, much like in the US and, and APAC, we have seen many business deals, partnerships and product launches go ahead um, yes. in, in recent months, which which is really a great sign for industry. And one thing I'd like to point out as well is that we've seen being 2020, many of the, the beauty players have these sort of 10-year sustainability plans and goals. Mm -hmm. And certainly we've seen L'Oreal, Unilever and Johnson & Johnson, among many others, launching their 2030 sustainability vision with exceptional detail on the, on the sorts of achievements they want to make around 
more sustainable packaging materials, moving towards a circular economy, which is particularly relevant here in Europe. The European Commission um, has unveiled plans. They want to become climate neutral. And really, the push for circularity here is huge. So it's great to see that despite all these difficulties and it being a very turbulent year, beauty has maintained its vision for sustainability. And in terms of uh, trends, I know that a lot of people have been watching the beauty and personal care space very closely, looking at consumer trends and how these have evolved because of the crisis. And we have seen some incredible acceleration of certain trends, I think, in the category. You know, hand care has just really shot to the fore as consumers are using hand sanitizer products more often and they're wanting to care for their hands. Uh, wellness certainly in the EMEA region has has seen a huge boom uh, and skin health like you were saying Amanda the same you know facial skin health with mask wearing and and just also a lot more time at home with work from home models people wearing a bit less makeup and really looking into the actual health of their skin has risen quite drastically. And from what I've heard from the analysts in the category, these aren't necessarily new trends and and they're not specifically exceptional, but the, the growth at which these have become important among consumers is just phenomenal. Have you seen any consumer trends really pick up in the last six months, Deanna? Yeah, I just wanted to echo in part what you were saying, Casey, that a lot of the trends I'm seeing here in the Americas region are not new, right, or not um, not maybe surprising at all, but they're certainly much more important in the current situation that we're living through. Um, hygiene, of course, is, you know, is, is of the ultimate importance. So, so many brands are selling soaps, are selling sanitizers, are even selling facial coverings as part of their offering to consumers, just to sort of keep the lifestyle brand that they already offered, you know, going um, and, and keep customers supplied with, you know, all of their needs, right? Whether it's the basic skincare or color cosmetics, but then also they now know that everyone has these needs for hygiene products. I am seeing um, some trends in skincare, but also color cosmetics and even cosmetic procedures to accommodate uh, the wearing of facial coverings, as well as what I would think of as really a live broadcasting life for people's everyday jobs now. Um, there's a lot of video conferencing um, and to just stay social with friends and family. So I'm seeing color cosmetics companies and even brands, you know, try to foreground long wearing products, products that won't um, smudge if you're wearing a facial covering. Of course, eye makeup is all the more exciting. And yeah, listening to um, numbers sort of beyond the product economy, there's been a significant uptick in cosmetic procedures here in the States, um, particularly related to the eye area. Um, I agree entirely. Hand and nail care is very popular here in the States. I'm seeing ingredient makers foreground moisturizing inputs to make sanitizing products sort of a a multitasking product. Um, And thinking about staying at home as well, at-home professional products, particularly things like hair color from companies like Madison Reed. Uh, L'Oreal has launched a new at-home hair line, the indie brand called DP Hue is in the mix there as well. 
And even beyond hair color, though, at-home products that sort of otherwise would have fit in the professional space are much more common. It was quite recently that the Colgate Palmolive brand called PCA Skin launched an at-home peel kit for estheticians and spa professionals then to sell on to their clients so they can sort of maintain the sort of routine that they had uh, pre-pandemic. So definitely a lot going on, but, but I wouldn't say anything new necessarily either. Amanda, what are you saying? So in Asia, it's pretty much the same. I agree with both of you. It's not anything new that we are seeing, really. And all the kind of trends that you've mentioned in terms of skin health, wellness, um, you know, at-home stuff is pretty much um, the same for Asia, really. Um, I would like to highlight this really interesting uh, survey done by this company. It's a Japanese company called iStyle. So they own the, uh, this beauty platform called AdCosme, which is basically this review site and also a retail platform and what they have is they aggregate all the kind of products that people buy and they, they gather all these reviews from all these consumers and it's it's really interesting because during the pandemic it found that 50% or more than 50% of consumers now take into account the brand's community and social efforts before making a purchase decision. For example, you know, one review noted that they decided to buy a Dior product because the brand contributed to society during COVID-19 and, um, and this is because um, during the COVID crisis, you know, the LVMH group mobilized its network to battle the pandemic and you know, retool its production lines to make the, the alcoholic gel for hand sanitizers. And interestingly, there's also another reviewer that, that noted, and more than one reviewer that noted that they are supporting brands that firmly consider the environment. And which is interesting because I remember a couple of months ago, we were talking about sustainability and APEC and Casey and, and Diana, both of you mentioned about circular beauty and you asked me whether circular beauty was a thing in Asia and I said not really. And that's because only, there were what I knew of was only a handful of brands that use refillery services, you know, inside to recycle packaging and they do it on a very small scale. You know, they rent out spaces in cafes and co-working spaces and I didn't think it was a very um, a big market, you know, still like really in its infancy. But just after we talked about it, you know, last week, Shiseido held a conference about yeah, sustainable beauty actions. This is a launch and it also announced through this initiative that it would be implementing a refill service for its Altimune concentrate beginning next month at its flagship store in Ginza, Tokyo. And a couple of weeks ago, I spoke to a New Zealand brand called Emma Lewisham. So this brand has is partnered with TerraCycle so consumers can mail their empty bottles back to the firm for recycling. So the brand owner Emma is really passionate about the circular beauty space and she plans to heavily promote it. And she just launched in Singapore and she will be looking into other APEC markets and she will be heavily, she told me that she'll be heavily promoting this kind of like return recycle program back in the, in the region. What's interesting within all of this for the beauty world, I think very often and traditionally we have seen common consumer trends worldwide, but then on a regional basis, there's very specific uh, market trends. But perhaps with COVID being a worldwide crisis that's impacting everyone in every market uh, in some way, do you think we've seen um, consumer trends uh, almost globalize within the beauty and personal space? That's a really good point, actually. We've I think because just... we're all experiencing pretty much the same thing, right? You know, we like in terms of sustainability, the whole wide world, we've been using a lot of single-use plastics, you know, with masks, gloves, takeaway food containers. And I remember we're all getting the same message that the coronavirus pandemic, you know, is linked to human degradation of wildlife habits and things like that. So possibly that's the reason why. 
I think it's just so interesting to see so many echoes between the three regions that perhaps wouldn't have been so pronounced uh, in previous years. So it's maybe something to think about from a strategic point of view for businesses operating across regions and markets. Um, in these last six months, uh, so much has happened and we've only got time to really provide a snapshot. But do you think that there have been any key learnings in your regions, Amanda? For me, I think the loss of the tactile experience in beauty is probably something that would affect the industry for a long time. You, know, you can't go in and try a product anymore and, and beauty is something that you have to experience. Of course, there's tech developments with AR and VR, but I know some brands that, that, that still don't think that it can replace the same thing. More than one brand owner has been telling me that they you know they pay attention to so much into formulating the product because you know in Asia it's all about sensory experience for us you know Asians have very sophisticated taste when it comes to the feel of a product in terms of like the smell and everything and so she feels that it's been difficult to get consumers to to try the products um and it's something that is very hard to replace and um actually no I spoke to one brand that explained that the way around it is just to really build a a very beautiful brand story around the product, around the brand, around the ingredients. And it's, so in order to touch the consumer, you have to touch their emotions, you know, stir their imaginations in order to just give you a shot. Diana, have you seen any uh, particular learnings amongst the challenges that industries faced over in the States? I do think it's particularly interesting what, what Amanda just said there about um, almost marketing and communication strategies replacing sensorial formulations or at least being able to communicate them. Of course, I'm sure the sensorial payoff still has to be there when the customer does purchase the product, but I think really rethinking how, how stories are told, that's an interesting interesting learning to be sure. One of the, the things I've noticed here quite a lot in the States is that um, companies of every size have been noticing the importance of diversification of absolutely everything. Uh, diversification of sourcing uh, for ingredients, diversification of manufacturing options, diversification obviously of packaging suppliers as I suggested earlier, but then also distribution, um, thinking about where you sell your product, whether it's you know, not just like D to C and uh, brick and mortar, but in what markets around the world. I think diversification just across the board has become uh, all the more important as, as we've watched different regions shut down sort of on a rolling basis or different economies changing over the course of this pandemic. I think that's been quite large. I mentioned earlier supply chain issues, you know, a, a huge challenge is, is the economic recession uh, that, that we're all facing um, and tremendous unemployment here in the States. So, you know, that's going to affect the, the industry, whether we like it or not, as well as as well as beauty always does. Um, I would also say that sort of an opportunity or a learning, I think, that's come out of this. And Amanda suggested it earlier, saying that almost now is the time, right, for small brands to get into retail or, or brands that were otherwise D2C to think about having a physical presence. I'm, I'm seeing something similar here in the States, and I've actually been surprised in recent months, and maybe it's because they already signed leases <laughs> before, the, before the pandemic hit, but I've seen a couple multinational companies move into retail in interesting ways. L'Oreal opened a huge new travel retail shop at the LaGuardia Airport here in New York City. Um, and as Amanda suggested, touchless technology is really key in these spaces. So that 
space has a lot of AI technology. Um, and so does the new, actually the first retail store that Avon has ever opened, uh, which is here in North America. Um, in Los Angeles is opening basically right now and, and with quite a lot of technology. But I think it's quite interesting to see these very large companies get into brick and mortar retail uh, enthusiastically at a time like this when consumer traffic is, is very down, both in the airports and on the sidewalks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Certainly, it's so interesting to compare how bigger industry players are responding versus the indie community. Yeah, From- yeah. From my side in Europe, I think what's come to to the fore from the indie side of our industry is the importance of community. Uh, I spoke to a beauty indie expert who really said that this sense of community and the communities built around these smaller brands really has been what saved them in such a difficult time. And I think what's interesting now is that the bigger players are really starting to see the importance of that. And you know, learning that it really, really is critical to remain relevant and authentic to your consumers, which is arguably much harder when you're a big multinational. But really, that's become a key learning, I think, for for European business. What I am sort of keenly following is how companies here are managing to remain proactive, so continue investments in innovation, R&D, social presence, whilst also being reactive to to what remains a very ongoing crisis. And within that, I've seen how important collaboration has been for the EMEA region and Cosmetics Europe and the CTPA in the UK both rolled out very, very interesting and hugely valuable programs that that have been used by industry. So the CTPA um, opened up an online exchange portal, sort of presenting it like a B2B matchmaking um, portal where when the crisis really hit and supply chains were very much disrupted, um, companies were able to go on to this portal and see if they could offer help or assistance to other businesses and it really sort of cut down lead time in terms of doing business exchange, business contracts and things like that. And Cosmetics Europe also put together an online platform with the strapline working together, again providing resources necessary for collaboration to become much more easier. Certainly, I don't think there's anybody uh, in the beauty and personal care industry who would sit here today and say they have learned nothing in the last six months. I think there's been plenty learned um, and hopefully industry can continue to apply these learnings. If we just finish off our conversation with looking forward in terms of the future and what beauty and personal care might look like in the next year or or few years post-COVID. I think there remains a lot of uncertainty, of course, and we're certainly seeing that confirmed now as Europe starts to go back into lockdown. For me, I'm going to be keeping a really keen eye on how beauty tech continues to evolve. Amanda, you mentioned there some really fantastic things happening in the APAC region, and the same can be said here. We've got a really exciting, well, it's a global launch actually from L'Oreal. They're launching their at-home perso device next year and it's been in the workings for some time and you've got the alchemist atelier who are really building presence with that at-home fragrance maker i think that you know as consumers become more adjusted to distant living 
the role that beauty technology has to play in their lives will become even more important. So I think that'll be a really exciting space to watch. And skin health as well, just hugely on topic. And it was something that was certainly bubbling away uh, for some time previously, but I think what's different now is that you've got consumer engagement and interest in this arguably quite complex topic when we're talking about the skin microbiome probiotics, prebiotics, postbiotics, there's so much there, you know, describing an active ingredient to a regular consumer can be very complex, but there's certainly an increasing appetite on really wanting to understand how to improve skin health. And on that point, I find it quite interesting that research is showing that consumers are looking for for a more sort of medicalized and expert approach to this they're really wanting to know the finite details uh, what, what does the future look like uh, for you Amanda over in Asia well I just want to build on the I know what you said about beauty tech yes it's something that we are going to have to keep an eye on but I think it's most important that it's really about the experience with the consumer. You know, we've seen all these brands like L'Oreal, um, Shiseido, building up all these really crazy ideas on, you know, selfie walls and um, interactive touch points in their pop-ups, especially in the travel retail section. It's really all about the experience, you know, it's how to draw the consumer out. But you don't also necessarily need beauty tech to, to create an experience. So there's a bespoke perfumery brand in Singapore called Maison 21G. Maison 21G um, also kind of fulfilled this whole tap into opportunities in the retail space. And they recently unveiled two new retail locations in Singapore and in two very busy locations. And um, according to the brand owner, Joanna, she has created this workshop you know how to create fragrances she teaches you and she blends fragrances for you and you know you can create you can walk away with um, an ex uh, your own bespoke perfume and according to her she says all the slots for her workshop thursday to sunday are just packed back to back and i think what this tells us is that people are looking for new experiences and you know because they're bored out of their minds a lot of times we can't travel especially here um, there's not much travel to be had so i think that's a great opportunity for brands to get creative and another thing i i, I want to highlight this brand called aroma baby it's a mother and baby care brand that's been around for about two decades already and this brand has been very very successful in the overseas market and uh, last year the brand owner told me that she was you know focusing a lot of uh, efforts on the Chinese market but of course at the start of the outbreak the export sales just took a hit you know I think it was almost decimated but luckily the brand was agile enough to quickly build up its D2C business partnered with a local department Sorgmeyers which also had reinforced its e-commerce um, channel and from that, the brand found out that there was a huge demand locally. You know, consumers were looking for products that were made in Australia from Australian ingredients. So even though they were looking for overseas opportunities, it turns out there were huge opportunities locally as well. And I, I, I'm willing to bet that there's the same kind of uh, demand around various regions, not just in Asia, but also in Europe and, and the US. Because I think the support local hashtag, you can, we are seeing it all across social media, across not just beauty industry, but every, every industry, to be honest. Certainly, that, that local movement's definitely kicked off here as well in Europe. Diana, what, what do you think the, the future of North America beauty personal care looks like? 
Yeah, I would certainly echo what uh, you and Amanda have said about digital tech. It's very important uh, to take care of that sort of innovation for the future. But I would I would highlight um, three other things, if I may. Um, and the first there is wellness and self-care. I think that's a tremendous opportunity now, but will be going forward. Um, and thinking about product innovation that can really help the consumer learn to care for herself. I think something else that will really be an opportunity for the industry uh, in the long run is that we're seeing a huge talent shuffle now with you know the tremendous number of layoffs and people changing jobs right now. I think we're seeing a real opportunity to sort of get your team in order in a way that we haven't seen for a long time. So I think that will have uh, repercussions for some time to come. And then if I think about, you know, 2020 on the whole, um, I want to sort of expand beyond COVID and uh, repeat something that Amanda said in terms of uh, consumer preferences for what I would think of as environmentally and even socially engaged companies. Um, so things that are happening in overlapping time with the pandemic. Um, here in the States, we have a federal election at the start of November, and we're, you know, uh, companies are waiting on, on decisions, you know, regarding maybe real estate, trade and employment, but their customer is ready for them to take a stand, uh, to speak up and to say something about what matters. And I think maybe even more uh, importantly and, and hopefully more long lasting is the movement we're seeing for racial justice. I know that's a global movement, but it's still quite important here in the States as well. And this is a huge opportunity uh, for brands to really grow and build more stable and diversified teams, uh, product lines and what have you. Um, corporations and businesses just have a really big opportunity right now to do better. There's just terrific opportunity. And I think as ironic as it is, right, to look at a pandemic year and say that there are uh, categories where we can grow the beauty industry and, you know, and looking at beauty tech as a whole new channel, even more important than it was six or eight months ago. You know, and it might seem ironic to say that the movement for racial justice is a is an important opportunity for our industry, but it is. Um, and I, I think the more seriously that the industry uh, takes current challenges and, and turns them into something fabulous, uh, the better we'll be in the future. I absolutely agree, Diana, and I think we've seen the same sort of mounting pressure and expectations on brands here. I think in a way you could almost string all of this together in saying that the consumers have become far more demanding and expectations are higher than ever across everything from sustainability through to social justice. They, they want brands to be much more than just a product, don't they? Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, the just I'm waiting to see whether the, you know, in terms of like what Diana said about the racial justice, in Asia, I'm still waiting to see what's going to happen with the skin brightening slash lightening slash whitening category and how it's yes. going to evolve. Maybe we should open a dialogue. What is going to happen? You know, how should we evolve? How will we proceed? And how can we be sensitive to you know, everyone in the market, not just, you know, a certain community? Yeah, no, it's so interesting because we think often about like consumer education, but this is really a space where we need collective, you know, two-way conversation and education across the board, both, you know, on the corporate side, um, on this startup and indie side, and on the consumer side. We really need to have an open dialogue and, and figure out what's right. There is clearly so much to discuss around how COVID-19 continues to throw up challenges, but also present opportunities for the beauty and personal care space. This podcast provides just a mere snapshot of some of our observations, but the conversation doesn't stop here. 
you can join us on all our websites and social media channels and sign up to our newsletters for the latest content delivered straight to your inboxes. Let's keep the B2B beauty conversation going.